Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Shalom, welcome back this week. I'm Dr. Diana Dye with Foundations in Torah and Bible Interact TV. And I want to encourage you to go to both our websites for Bible Interact TV and the Bible Interact website for educational resources and study courses. And my own website, Foundations in Torah, I offer a series called Study to Show Yourself Approved. It's a complete study program basically looking at how to study from a Hebraic backdrop. Not so much a hermeneutic course, but really a course in, to help you identify the various patterns in Scripture. In particular, patterns that have to do with the temple or the biblical calendar, the festival cycle. I go into the liturgy, different aspects of literary tools and devices. And, of course, looking at the culture, the cultural context of the time, the geography, history, uh, culture, archaeology, etc. So you can find that on my website uh, if you're interested in pursuing your studies in a little more detail. Now last time we were talking about, we had introduced Gideon. The concept of Gideon as being the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who was sent by God in the same way that Mos- Moses was. And so uh, Gideon was having an interaction with the Father. Yeah, he was he was called upon to be the great savior, the great redeemer, the strong redeemer, the Goel Hazak. But he responded with, how can I possibly save Israel? I'm the youngest. I need to have a sign. And we, we know that Moshe really responded in much the same way. How can I save Israel and give me a sign before I go back to Egypt? And we talked about how a great army came from the east. The Midian and Amalek kind of joined forces. They were Coming from the east, they were going to attack Israel. Of course, brought on by Israel's disobedience. But Gideon would be raised up to be the savior and to deliver his people. But in order to do that, first uh, an atonement had to be made. And we we saw a measure of that when he talked about uh, going to prepare a young goat. And in Hebrew, it says, I'm not soat. So we have an indication here that uh, the time is Passover and that he is preparing the goat of Passover, but also pointing head to the goat for Yom Kippur, and he is preparing matzah. Now, if you recall, going back even to our first session, we talked about the time for the prayers for dew, the tefillat tal, or the prayers for dew, and that time was associated with Nisan 1, the time in the spring, which is because the rabbis associated the spring with the dew as the time as the time that being the beginning of the redemption for Israel. Of course, the dew, a critical component for the life of Israel. They needed moisture through those dry summer months, and uh, the early morning dew was what watered the plants. So the rabbis definitely made a connection then between the dew and the redemption at the time of Passover. And they looked at it as a time of of resurrection. Of course, they didn't see in it the resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah. And so as Gideon is preparing the matzot and the goat, it says that a a fire went up from the rock and it consumed the meat. 
and the matzot. So we could argue that the matzot is really a substitute here for the lamb offering for Passover, just as it is in the Seder meal. And so out of this, the Lord says to Gideon, peace be unto you, you now you will not die. So from there, Gideon took 10 men from his servants and that night, basically, they went around and they tore down all the altars to Baal, and they tore down the Asherah trees. And uh, in the morning, of course, the men of the city were not all that happy. And uh, they, they said to Yoash, who was Gideon's father, bring out your son, and he will die because he's broken down all our altars. So we kind of see a little bit of the imagery of Yeshua the Messiah and Yeshua tearing down those altars and the uh, the altars of this, this Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the, the leadership, not all of them, but uh, their religious community, if you will, he wants to tear down those altars. Now, at the same time, we have, again, Midian, Amalek, and the people of the East is how they're described, gathering together as one to cross over, and they camped at uh, the Valley of Jezreel. And at the same time, we have the imagery of Gideon, uh, the picture of the future redemption, the time of the blowing of the shofar and the crying out of, in distress, and the recognition that, to God that if you're going to save Israel, you're going to save them through my hand, and I need a sign in a big way. So the sign that was given to Gideon, uh, something I think many of us know, the sign of the fleece, has in it uh, details that perhaps we don't know. So typically, and especially in Christian circles, we associate the idea of the fleece. You know, we don't really know what to pray. We don't know if this is really God's will. So we, so we throw out something we call a fleece, and if it happens this way, then it must be God's will. And if it happens that way, maybe not. But I think there's something much more penetrating, really, in this particular story. So it says he's, uh, he's going to spread out a fleece of wool. Uh, we have this in Judges 6.37. And the idea is what Gideon says to, to God, I will lay a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only while all the ground stays dry, then I will be convinced that you will save Israel through me. So he's trying to determine whether he is the true Savior, the one sent by God to deliver his people. But you'll see the pattern here of Gideon and the Messiah, Yeshua. And I think we've seen it up until this point as well. So from there, it says he got up early in the morning, or the idea that he rose up early in the morning, which is an interesting idiom for the kingdom. Uh, typically, as you're studying, you begin to understand that those references to the early morning or, or rising up in the morning have something to do with the resurrection and something to do with, with the kingdom to come. In fact, uh, from Shulchan Aruch, it says, let a man strengthen himself like a lion and arise early in the morning to render service to his creator. As David said, I will awaken the dawn. So the idea of dawn breaking forth is the idea of the kingdom breaking forth. And so the night has much to do with sort of the physical age in which we live in. And the dawn, the morning has to do with the future age to come, the world to come. So it says there in the morning, he basically, he uh, pressed the fleece together and wrung the dew out. So we know that the dew was just on the fleece. 
and he wrung the dew out and it produced a bowl full of water. So I believe this is really the first sign to Gideon and a picture of the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. And that picture of him wringing out the dew is kind of a picture of, uh, if you will, wringing out his body uh, with his blood. So there's this image of the body being wrung out or life taken out of the body. Now, if you think about fleece, of course, it's a covering for sheep and it makes clothing. And it's actually, if you will, a temporary covering for the sheep, the part that's going to be removed. So I see in this sort of a pattern here of the Messiah that the dew was only on the fleece. And that is that the dew of heaven was speaking of the resurrection of Yeshua in terms of his atonement, that the fleece is simply the covering or the clothing. So in essence, that was Yeshua's uh, covering or his, the flesh being his covering, if you will, and that life was being removed, but that life-giving force of the dew would come and raise Yeshua the Messiah from the dead. So that that outer clothing, that outer flesh that we wear, if you will, is just a temporary covering it will be the part that is ultimately removed. So we have this image, again, as the fleece is wrung out, that the body of Yeshua basically uh, being wrung out, that his blood is shed. And so by his atonement, then came the resurrection. So that's kind of the first sign, if you will, of the resurrection of the dew. Remember, it's the dew that's on the fleece only. Now, the second sign which would point to Yeshua's second coming. Remember, Gideon is a picture of both Yeshua's coming, comings, and uh, Gideon is a picture of the first coming of Messiah and his resurrection, and the second coming of a Messiah, the resurrection of everybody else, and that he is a picture of the Savior. So the second sign, this time, let it be dry on the fleece with all the dew over the ground. Now, do you see the connection now between this dew and the dew we had in the manna in Exodus 19, uh, excuse me, Exodus 16, where the dew was on the manna and then the dew was on the ground. Here we have the dew first in the first sign only on the fleece and in the second sign only on the ground. And so to my mind, this second sign of the dew being on the ground is speaking of the general resurrection of the righteous, that the first dew on the fleece was Yeshua and his resurrection and the second sign, the dew on the ground, was the res resurrection of everyone else. Now, that would take place in the fall, the time of the fall season, starting with Rosh Hashanah and going all the way to Sukkot. So the imagery we have of the atonement that Gideon brought, of course, he brought his matzah and his goat uh, as a picture of the, of the redemption at Passover. And then ultimately, because the enemies that are coming against them are the eternal enemies of the children of God coming from the east, as we see described in the book of Revelation. And so there's a twofold thing going on here with Gideon in the first coming and the first and the second coming and the final defeat of all the enemies. Now, just to, that's that kind of concludes the story of Gideon. I would certainly encourage you to read it. It's a very uh, powerful story, and you'll see many, many parallels between that story and sort of the entire redemption plan of God, if you will. Certainly, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, another great chapter on the resurrection, uh, talking about death, where's your victory, where's your sting, and then here we have the mortal putting on immortal, like changing clothes. So in the same way that Gideon put on the immortal with the dew on the fleece, 
the idea of clothing related to the resurrection, that this sort of clothing we wear, this flesh we wear, is simply temporary for the time of the, uh, till the time of the resurrection to come. Now, one other area or passage I want to look at before we get into the final narrative that I have, the story of Jacob and his sons Esau, excuse me, the story of Isaac and his sons Esau and Jacob, is uh, the Valley of the Dry Bones, one I think everyone is familiar with. Certainly, uh, Ezekiel 37.1, talking about son of man, can these bones come to life, prophesy over these bones, and then speaks about bringing a spirit into you and you will come to life. I will put sinews upon you. I will bring up flesh upon you. I will coat you with skin and then I will put a spirit into you and you will come to life. So there uh, certainly is a hint here at the resurrection of the dead. There are certainly numerous opinions on this particular chapter, but the idea of prophesying that the spirit will come and saying to the spirit come from the four generation uh, directions and blow on these slain people, these bones, and that they may come to life, certainly through the power of the Spirit. And this is what we're talking about, what the dew is, the power of the resurrection, the life-giving force that the dew would bring. And so the Spirit entered them and came to life, and they stood on their feet, a very, very great legion. Now, they, it is described here that these bones are the whole house of Israel, and they're saying, even though these bones are dry, completely dried out, and it seems that all our hope is lost. Now, we should back up here and give it some context, because this is Ezekiel speaking to the children of Israel when they're in exile. And of course, it is though the nation is dead, and the bones have dried out, and that all their hope is lost. And Ezekiel tries to keep that hope alive. And of course, this this relates to that particular time. And, and then coming up in chapters 40 through 47, Ezekiel is pointing them again back to the house of God and, and returning to the land and rebuilding in this great and glorious temple that he's talking about, which we describe as the third temple. But it, it says in that passage again back in, in Ezekiel 37, I'm opening your graves and raising you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you to the soil of Israel. Then you will know that I am Adonai when I open your graves and when I raise you up from your graves, my people, and when I put my spirit into you and you come to life and I set you on your soil. So this is the message that Ezekiel is trying to communicate to the children of Israel when they're in Babylon in exile. And of course, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who hauled off the best and the brightest out of Israel and took them back to Babylon for a period of 70 years. And Ezekiel's job was to basically keep hope alive. But contained within this story is something that, that the sages call the Tefiat Hametim, which means the resurrection of the dead. And so some see this uh, connected to modern-day Israel's uh, independence, which is actually called the Day of the Bones. In Hebrew, it's called Yom Hatzma'ut, the day of the bones. And so they see a connection to the restoration of the whole house of Israel and the Jewish people coming to resemble, resemble the dried bones, which have been lost with all hope and viability. And so uh, sages and scholars have connected Ezekiel 37, certainly to the idea of the resurrection of a nation that was lost and unidentifiable in the world and has come back together and is once again a nation. 
So, you know, there's, there's also in this uh, particular event um, argument over whether this is actually a prophetic vision or this is actually something that happened. And the question is, who are these people? And there's a lot that goes in. I'm not going to talk about that today. One of the things that the sages also say is that this particular uh, passage was um, took place in the Kidron Valley. Of course, for those of you who've been to Israel, you know that's the place of the dead. They're buried in the Kidron Valley. It's said to be the first place that the resurrection will take will happen a- after the Cave of Machpelah, where the matriarchs and patriarchs are buried. So is- Ezekiel, as one who was strengthened by God, was really the instrument um, through which basically these bones would come to life. That is, he continually reminded them of their return and the call to rebuild the temple and the central institution of their faith. And it was said that he was given the key to this Tekhiat Hametim, or the resurrection of the dead. But in all this, there's the emphasis on the spirit, the do, the life-giving force of the resurrection. And uh, there's a comparison also made in terms of the tabernacle, because there's similarities between how the, the bones came together and were connected one to another in the same way that the boards and the sockets and the curtains of their tabernacle were just like the sinews and the flesh and the skin that, uh, that coat was coated over them. Um, this is uh, from Saja Gaon and the Ramban. Uh, they said initially there will be uh, a Messiah who is descended from Joseph, who will bring about a degree of independence in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, where many of the former exiles will have gathered. So this idea of the ingathering of the exiles and them the exiles being raised up, having to do with the resurrection of the dead. And um, certainly there are those that uh, did not believe in a resurrection, and we see that amongst the Sadducees, for instance, and certainly we see that today. Uh, and some believe that basically there would be no resurrection, resurrection outside the boundaries of the land of Israel. So the question was, if they're in exile in Babylon and cut off from Israel, how, how do they get back to the land for the resurrection of the dead? As the theory goes, uh, says that the people who uh, died outside the boundaries of Israel would not come alive except that God himself would make tunnels for them in the earth and then through which they would basically make their way back to Eretz Israel. So that's kind of interesting imagery of, uh, of the people returning back to the land. So from here, I'd like to begin any, uh, this week talking about the story of, of the blessing that Isaac uh, bestowed on Jacob and Esau, his son, both his sons. This is sort of the final uh, story narrative in this whole concept of the dew of heaven or the resurrection of the dead. Now, this can be found in Genesis 27. And Genesis 27 is uh, thought by the rabbis to have actually happened at Passover. Remember, Passover, the Tefillah Tal, the prayer, the prayer for dew, is the time of the redemption and the time associated with the prayer for dew that begins on Nisan 1. So they've connected this particular passage to that. And within this passage, I think you can also see some hints of Yom Kippur as we get into it in a little more detail. Of course, this is a chapter that provokes a lot of discussion and debate on the whole deception thing with Esau and Jacob. So I'm hopefully give you just maybe a little bit of a different view on it. Not to say that all didn't happen, and I'm one, a stickler to 
to say that one should always start with the plain meaning of the text before we go off half-baked into some mystical commentary. But I think there's some compelling uh, information here might help us have a better look at this. So perhaps as we go through this, you could think of Isaac as a picture of the father. Now, typically, the, ma- the patriarchs are pictures of God the Father, and of course, they're not perfect pictures by any stretch of the imagination. But in this case, we're going to look at Isaac in that light. Now, the father, of course, has two sons. One, we could argue, is the Messiah. The other one's a false Messiah. The imagery of these two, two sons, these two nations that were in the womb, and the father sent Esau, it says, into the field. And, of course, we know the field is the world. And he was sent into the world to hunt and to lay an ambush. And basically, from the word sada to hunt, to snare his prey. So that certainly is the work of the false messiah. And uh, the word we have, sada here, for to hunt or lay a trap or snare his prey, is a word that actually has an extra letter hay in it. So this is a possibly a prophetic reference to a time in the future, pointing to the messianic kingdom. Hey, the letter hey, the value of five, can often represent the kingdom. Now, Rivka, who is a picture of the spirit, we see that the matriarchs are a picture of the Holy Spirit. Over here is Isaac telling Esau to go into the field to get some game so that his father can bless him before he dies, which is kind of bizarre considering he's not going to die for another 57 years. When we think of Rivka as a picture of the Holy Spirit, she says to Jacob, Yaakov, listen to my voice and go to the flock and get two kids of the goats. So Yaakov does that. So I think, just think in terms of Yom Kippur and the two kids of the goats from the flock. And it says that Rivka would make them into delicacies for Isaac. So she would make the meat the way the father loved. So think about the meat, the collecting of the meat from the flock, the two goats, Yom Kippur, the meat as being like a the burnt offering, for example, the offering that's completely burnt up on the altar. And it was the offering that was solely dedicated to the father. It had a pleasing aroma. And it was this, the offering that was completely consumed where the skins just went to, went to the priests which is interesting as well because we're going to see kind of what happens to the skins of these two kids or of these goats. So Rivka is kind of making the delicacy the way the father loved. So think of it as the Holy Spirit and our father and the meat, the offering that went up to him. So in contained within the element of the burnt offering is the idea of atonement, again, as a pleasing aroma to God. And the burnt offering was always considered to be God's food. Again, that was the offering that's totally consumed. So if if Isaac is indeed a picture of God the Father, then the game was a picture of that offering that he was supposed to go out and prepare. And again, the, uh, the, the meat, the food, in this case, belonged to God. Normally, in the other offerings, the food would belong to the priests. And... Uh, Typically, the goat is identified as a sin offering, and certainly we can see that to be true at Yom Kippur. The goat offering, uh, generally for unintentional sin, which is what I think is significant about Yeshua's offering, because as an offering, he was for intentional sin. The goat very often was a voluntary offering, and uh, again, for certain festivals, certainly Pesach and, uh, and the Yom Kippur service. 
So then it tells us that Rivka took the garments of Esau and she clothed Jacob. Now those garments came from those goats. And she covered Jacob with the skins of the young goats. So think as the priests got the skins from the burnt offering and used those in the same way Jacob kind of is a picture of the, of the priests being covered with the skins. And she covered his hands and his neck and mentions in particular the neck, which is the place where the body and the head join. So there's kind of an imagery here about the Messiah and us being joined together in atonement. So we have that as well from Genesis 3.20, that God made garments of skin for Adam and Hava and clothed them, clothing them with this, the idea of the burnt offering. So the burnt offering was the skin for that clothing. So I think I'll just kind of close this out here. Next time we're going to pick it up, we're going to talk about, and we'll probably conclude about Esau, the one who was hairy, and uh, Jacob, the one who was smooth skin. Again, I want to encourage you to go to my website, www.foundationsintorah.com, and check out all the latest teachings that I have, and consider becoming a member today. So we'll see you next time, and, and we'll be talking about Esau and Jacob. Thank you. Shalom.